Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's what I look for is, is how can we create these companies that are capital rich and that very much are focused on increasing capital, mostly for, you know, whoever it is that owns it, but do so in a way that is sustainable. I mean, this whole short term thinking that we've got ourselves trapped in, I just don't think works when we're talking about, again, the shift to knowledge based work. When you're manufacturing widgets, sure, you might be able to put some short term pressure on that process. Um, It's really hard when your entire supply chain is human knowledge workers. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. And hi, this is Paul Gibbons. Welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. Today, I've got an exciting doubleheader. Charlotte Blank, the Chief Behavioral Officer at Maritz, and Kelly Monahan from Accenture, who is their lead researcher on the future of work. Both are shorter interviews, so I put them together, and there will be timestamps in the show notes if you want to skip around. Behavioral science and the future of work are two elements of the subtitle of my new book, Impact. Those are two of the most discussed and most important trends in business today. The paperback version of Impact came out in September 2019, and you will find a link in the show notes, and it is available on Amazon and other online book retailers. Before the show, I owe listeners an update and something of an apology. I spent summers trying to win an event at the World Series of Poker. They say a kid with a dream. I don't talk about it much, but I've competed at international level in bridge, backgammon, and poker since a teenager. Mind sports and esports are two of my non-work passions. That effort, uh, unsuccessful on this occasion, and finishing off Impact took up three solid months, and keeping up the rhythm of two episodes a month, or indeed any episodes, proved impossible. The economics of podcasting are still difficult. I do think bigger, think better for love and because it makes a difference, but it's a huge cost in time investment and Patreon, see the link below, hasn't caught fire as a means of monetization. So do please, if you feel inclined, support the podcast with two or five or $10 a month on Patreon. Do check out my new book, Impact, 21st Century Change Management, Behavioral Science, Digital Transformation, and the Future of Work. I'm giving a couple of big conference talks in Vail on October 23rd, a 12-minute TED-style talk at an event called the Global Solutions Forum. And then I'm appearing as a panelist at the same on the ethics of AI, and I'm also running a session on climate change and business. Then, shortly after that, I'm off to Chicago on October 29th. I'm kicking off the keynote address at the Association of Change Management Practitioners, Uh, The title of my talk is Humanizing Change in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So if you're in Chicago or you fancy a trip to beautiful Vail, come check me out. Uh, Links to both of those events are in the show notes. Oh, and there are other ways you might help. Amazon reviews make a huge difference to books. Uh, I think I've got half a dozen. Uh, I need uh, three to five times that. Uh, It improves the ranking of the book in search. And for the podcast, liking and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or elsewhere takes seconds and is also very helpful for search. And now on with the show. Charlotte Blank is Chief Behavioral Officer at Maritz. She's an expert and sought-after conference speaker on everything from incentive programs to consumer psychology. With an MBA from Harvard and a background in psychology and neuroscience, she has a dream job at Maritz, helping make those ideas commercially relevant. And next, after Charlotte, we have a repeat performance, we have Kelly Monahan, who is back with me to talk about the future of work. So with that, let's get on with the show and with my first guest for this episode, Charlotte Blank from Maritz. Charlotte, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation today. So um, where do you find yourself right now? You're in St. Louis, where Maritz finds their head office. Is that correct? That's exactly right. I'm here at the headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri. That's cool. Do I, I always start with something embarrassing. You know, I'm going to share in the show notes your resume and all of that kind of stuff. Maybe I'll ask you to say a few words about that. But what's one thing, you know, that might not be on your resume that's a little quirky or unusual, you know, about you that people will find surprising? 
<laughs> a fun fact. I'd say a fun fact is I grew up playing handbells. I was in a handbell choir and we were actually pretty good. And I can say that I toured the world as a teenager playing in a handbell choir and got to go to China, Japan and England and Scotland before uh, before college. So that was something I'm proud of that I rarely have a chance to share in front of uh, like nerded audiences. That is amazing. You know, you're my first handbell pro. I am not surprised at all to hear that. <laughs> Gosh, I want to ask you so many questions about that, but I'm not sure my listeners <laughs> like how you got into it and everything like that. And, and tell us a little about your background. How did you become a chief behavioral officer? I have always been obsessed with psychology, just interested in what makes people tick. And especially as that relates to like, you know, applications, I guess applied behavioral psychology is something I've always been really, really interested in. Like as, as long as I can remember, um, that I went into college kind of thinking I'd major in psychology, ended up studying neuroscience and behavioral biology at Emory, which was a really fascinating sort of interdisciplinary look at behavior and went from there into a career in marketing and advertising, thinking that that was pretty much the closest you could get to applied psych in the marketplace and did get to work on some really cool things at um, some big companies like Turner Broadcasting and General Motors. So really kind of was on this marketing track. I added an MBA to that. Um, experience so I can kind of bring together the two worlds of scientific theory and business leadership. But really, Merits was sort of a gift from the universe. Merits reached out, and uh, we're uh, GM and Merits have long been partners. And we started talking, and you know, Merits really is a company that's completely founded on behavioral science, um, mm -hmm. and has been. You know, we're a 125 year old company, and and have been making decisions based on science for a long time, and just you know, kind of using different terminology for it. But um, it's a really great home for me and my interests of merging the the science with the uh, with the practice. So I came to the company to take over a group called the Merits Institute, which Steve Merritt, our chairman, set up back in 2009, which to his credit, I think really says a lot about his interest in psychology. He was a psych major at Princeton many years ago. And, you know, the company really, he, he has this belief that our Merits' form of innovation is based in a better understanding of psychology. So he set up the Merits Institute back in 09, which was basically like a school, like an internal education program. And so I came in three years ago, which was roughly, I think it was 2016 and maybe 2015, and um, basically evolved that work from a little less of a focus on education and a lot more focus on experimentation so yep. that we've been producing new insights and publishing those findings and working with scientists, professors, researchers at academic institutions who can help us design rigorous analyses and experiments. So as we've become much more of an applied behavioral science practice, the title, I guess, sort of evolved from that. You know, it was important to Merits to demonstrate to the world that this is something that's so core to the value we provide and core to sort of our purpose that, you know, of course, we would have someone with the title chief behavioral officer, you know, sort of a market signal, but also a reminder, you know, to, to us in the company that behavioral science is really central to everything we do. Excellent. And, and tell me this, for, for listeners who, you know, aren't familiar with Merits, could you give us the 411 on, on what Merits is about, what its mission is, what it offers to the world, uh, so forth? Do you mind doing that? Happy to. Yeah, Merits is a really interesting company, and I'm, I'd be surprised if your listeners had heard the, the name Merits, but they've almost certainly, each and every one of them, been a participant in a program rerun. So Merits is, very broadly speaking, a people and performance company. Our signature statement is the science and art of people and potential. We work for about 75-ish of the Fortune 100, so very large clients in of all industries. And what we do for them depends on their needs, but basically we apply apply um, behaviorally informed approaches to motivate discretionary effort and performance of their stakeholders. So I realize that's a lot of jargon, but I'm trying to capture sort of the breadth of what we do, which is really quite broad. But Merits started uh, way back 125 years ago, actually as a jewelry company. So Edward Merits was selling jewelry to consumers. And eventually the Great Depression hit and he was stuck with a real jam and a surplus of gold watches and similar items. And he basically kind of made the ultimate pivot and turned the company into a B2B focus and thought, you know what, I could sell watches and jewelry to 
companies, to large organizations, and they could use these to give to their employees as motivation and recognition devices to say, hey, I appreciate you. I recognize milestones at our company. I'm uh, rewarding you for performance. So out of that was sort of born this now mega industry of incentive recognition and reward. Um, And so a fun fact about merits that I think really kind of paints a picture of what we're about is if you've ever heard of the concept of giving someone a gold watch for retirement, Mm -hmm. uh, which is now such an icon, you know, of the space of you know, recognizing milestones. Well, that was actually invented by Edward Meritz. We were the people who came up with the gold watch for retirement. So that kind of thing has been out there for now, what seems like forever. Right. And has evolved and grown from there, you know, from a straightforward, you know, watch for service to much more scientifically founded and nuanced um, programs. But they all have something to do with uh, helping get kind of more effort and uh, performance out of your sales force, um, recognizing your employees in a way that builds the values of your corporate culture, or on the other side, understanding and building loyalty of your customers. So we have a large um, Merit CX is our market research business. We have also a large consumer loyalty practice. So anytime you're earning points or status on a hotel, airline, credit card, Merits could very likely be powering that program. So um, as I said, it's really quite broad, but we really have a tremendous amount of history, heritage, um, institutional knowledge, and real scientific knowledge about what motivates people in the workplace and as consumers. And we turn that into programs, technology, and rewards that move the needle for our clients. And uh, it sounds like some of what you do anyway is to do with incentives in the workplace. Uh, What percentage is incentives and what percentage is, if you want, stuff focused on internal motivation, for example, uh, inspiration, education, uh, that sort of stuff? How, how How do you split that world? Well, you may not, we really, it, but <laughs> yeah, we really don't. We really don't delineate or split or or put into percentages because it's really about creating a motivation landscape that's as nuanced as your organization is, you know, or or that your your culture is. And I'd say, you know, it's important. We we have a whole philosophy on this, but it's important to really think about both intrinsic motivation and how the culture that you're building in the workforce supports a sense of autonomy, mastery, social connection. Yep. You know, start there and ensure that you're creating a space for that intrinsic connection to the work to really flourish and blossom. And you always, you know, you can't go wrong by enriching that. But we also know and have tons of evidence that extrinsic incentives and rewards also build motivation and have a direct effect on performance if they're carefully designed. So um, many programs do include some, some component of that. I would also add that a huge portion of our business is in the automotive space and other industries who sell through distribution partners like dealerships or wholesalers. So yeah. they're in this kind of unique situation where the manufacturer does not directly own or control the distribution channel, but they yeah. can influence them through oftentimes large scale incentive platforms and programs. That would be kind of a core area of expertise that Merits has. And we've been really longstanding partners of many of the, the automotive OEMs in particular. So where you can't, if you're an OEM and you can't necessarily get in there and manage the culture of each dealership and have as much influence on intrinsic motivation yeah. as you might like to, there's a lot you can do with carefully designed cash or or point-based incentive programs. Or with trips, we also have Merits Global Events is one of the largest provider of incentive travel and top performer travel experiences, which can really be kind of lifetime memorable moments that also contribute to intrinsic motivation in the long run. That's really interesting. And what percentage did you say you were in the auto industry, you were auto industry uh, focused? I'm sure I didn't name a percentage, but it's a substantial one. Okay. All right, then. And um, what about orthodoxy in the, in, you know, organizational behavior? I mean, any, any bald statement about this is going to be an error, but one of the, well, one piece of orthodoxy is that pay is a hygiene factor beyond a certain level of pay contribution high pay is no longer a motivator that's that's been sort of orthodoxy since 70 but you have an approach to incentives which goes beyond that so i'd love to hear more about that yeah i think there's um there's kind of two parts to that question one i do think that that's largely true that we tend to overemphasize and overweight 
what we think the role of pay is, especially like just salary and compensation. Mm. Um, I think that's largely true that it is kind of a compensation factor and it's important. No doubt it should be, you know, I have a slide I always use. That's a quote of Danny DeVito's face. And it's a quote from the movie, the heist where he's shouting into the phone and he's like, of course he wants cash. It's why they call it cash. Like, it's so important. <laughs> that's very good. I like, like that. <laughs> like, I try to like say that up front, like, look, we're not misinterpreting all of this, you know, popular research on self-determination theory and making the statement that like no one works for money anymore. And it's all about millennials who just want, you know, to feel like they're contributing to society. I think sure. that's, you know, that's naive. So of course, um, you know, pay people fairly, make people feel like they're compensated for their work and that they can compare themselves to their neighbors, you know, in, in a reasonable way so that they're not thinking about it. But yeah, beyond that, it can be a real slippery slope and used as an incentive on top of that, just throwing more cash on top of cash sort of falls into this mental accounting trap where it just kind of gets added to the same pot, is not really noticed or internalized in a way that feels special or like a true recognition for additional right. effort. Yeah. And it just feels like kind of a waste, you know? So for there's lots of reasons why we encourage and build in um, non-cash rewards, be they tangible rewards or intangible, just kind of verbal recognition or status, depending on the program. But one of the many reasons is that they're sort of accounted for separately. And we think of them as a different thing that's special for going above and beyond. So I'd say that, you know, yes, in general, I think um, as far as pay is concerned, just pay people fairly, but then focus on the culture, focus on things that are more memorable. Mm -hmm. um, but also our space, this incentive recognition and reward world is not so much about compensation as it is about getting people to find that sort of extra 10% they have inside to go above and beyond. It's like the cherry on top, the icing. It's the like, go get them. Like we want to double down on this particular item that we're, we really need to sell a lot of this summer. The, these sort of high momentum areas where you really want to put some extra focus or to really show appreciation. We'd like to kind of separate that not only from salary, but also from variable compensation, like a straightforward commission. We, yeah. we would think of this as yet a third thing. Interesting. Gosh, you, you have, there's so much nuance to what you do. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of fun stuff to read. Yeah. It's not just pay and benefits, right? Right. Yeah pay and non-pay benefits. That's it. That's there's much, much more to it these days. Well, that's fascinating. I'm definitely not an expert in that. Now, on a more general note, is the world, uh, I mean, I say in one of my blogs or something like that, the behavioral science is the new black. And yeah. um, it's why is the world going gaga for behavioral science in business right now? Like what, what's, what's converging or what's, you know, why this moment for us? Yeah, I'm seeing that too. Um, it's hard to put your finger on why, but it does. It's kind feel of lucky, like, right? I mean, you, yeah. you didn't say like, oh, "Okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be at the vortex of, you know, what businesses <laughs> think is important for the next decade." Yeah. <laughs> so it's anyway, true. well done, it well feels, done, you, right? <laughs> well, I hope you know. I, I'm proud of the contributions that Merits is making, and hope to you know keep keep pushing us forward as a leader in the space. But I I, I agree. I acknowledge that there's been some really powerful tailwinds for us in terms of just this general interest in popular science and um, a, a curiosity about behavioral science. Like I've just noticed in the past few years, there were terms that like, I'm, you know, default settings and anchoring and social proof, like these kind of term, these cognitive biases are now being tossed around in casual conversation. And it just, it feels like just a few years ago, they were something new that we would have to kind of start from the beginning and explain this concept of bounded rationality. And um, now that's becoming just much more commonly known, which is great because now it's just expanded our pool of you know conversation and we can get much deeper, right? Much more quickly. But what is driving that? I mean, there's been a lot of interest in the media, the rise of TED Talks and so many New York Times bestsellers by social psychologists who have found a way to translate and speak to a popular audience. You know, maybe it's just the expanding, you know, opportunities we have to consume media. But gosh, like what is, I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and um, we've got um, Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. Fun fact, he was a high school classmate of Steve Maritz's, I believe. It grew up in St. Louis together. But yeah, um, so funny. Yeah, I have really a connection. Great. I worked with I worked with him in the 1980s. That's funny. Really? Lewis that's also, cool. yeah. Back as well, yeah, great. 
Yeah, great book, of course, about the uh, the, the friendship between um, Kahneman and Tversky and the story of how they kind of came to found this this new space of behavioral economics. And it strikes me that, you know, his book Moneyball before that spawned, you know, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't take all the credit, but he was like really just this movement toward data analytics and now like predictive analytics that you know, Moneyball really seemed to be at the center of. So it does feel like applied behavioral science is kind of the next wave of that, like the future of business and how to understand people based on how they really behave, not just how we think they should behave if they were perfectly rational economic calculators. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's great. And what books would you, I mean, I was obviously thinking fast and slow. You can't really have a conversation about this without coming to uh, Kahneman. But um, what else would you recommend for the practitioner? Um, yeah, I'd say for my my kind of basic go-tos are always thinking fast and slow, predictably irrational, and yep. anything by Dan Ariely. What else do we have here? Nudge, of course, which spawned a whole bunch of um, really powerful examples of nudge units, these government entities. I'll do a shout out for one of Dan Ariely's books, um, the latest one, Dollars and Cents, is co-authored by a fellow named Jeff Chrysler, um, who's, Jeff is not only a good science writer, but he's a really funny guy. He's a stand-up comedian, and he is editor-in-chief of peoplescience.com, which is Uh our content platform to sort of show the world how much fun behavioral science is. We really thought that that was kind of missing out there for business leaders in particular who, you know, they might not be academics per se, but they're intellectual and they're curious about human behavior and how that affects their work. And this was kind of meant to be a platform for them that's fun to read, shareable, and really kind of shows the that this kind of work is not daunting and scary. It's important um, in that it's you know kind of going to be the future, but it's something we can all participate in. Yeah, so, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be grim about it. You can take it seriously. You don't have to take yourself yeah. seriously. Yeah, and you can be part of it. So yeah, yeah. peoplescience.com is a, just an ongoing content platform I would recommend. And is it uh, associated in any way with Merits or are you a contributor or a blogger or, or something like that? Or you just it shout is. out, like this is just one of your, one of your partners? Merit, yeah, full disclosure, Merits is the parent company of peoplescience.com. Very, very cool. And what about conferences? Because uh, that's obviously the way for, I mean, I, I just think you must be so busy right now. I mean, you, I don't know how often, I mean, how many conference invitations are you getting a year right now? I don't know. It must well, be insane. It must be insane, right? I, I, I can't imagine. It's actually a big part of our business. So Merit's Global Events, I, I mentioned we actually put on something like 9,000 plus events per year, and many of them are trade shows and conventions. So we have like hundreds and hundreds of clients who are um, associations of, you name it, there's an association for it. So I do travel a lot to speak just at client events. And that's pretty fun because you were probably asking about behavioral science themed conferences. Yeah. I'm interested in those as well. But um you know, just yesterday, for example, I spoke to a, a group of thought leaders from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, which is one of the largest professional associations in the world and a really big client of ours. So this is a group full of people who represent the Caterpillars, the John Deere's of the world, you know, large equipment manufacturers, and they're hosting really innovative thought leadership conferences of their own and inviting people like me and of all different backgrounds to speak and are just as interested in behavioral science as, you know, the whatever behavioral science conference you had, you know, kind of top of mind. So that, that's what something that's really cool about this space is it's literally applicable to anything because whether you're concerned about people in your business, in your organization, your customers, you would be interested in what's kind of driving their thinking and their their decisions. Yeah, so I do speak a lot just at any kind of conference. But as far as the behavioral science ones are concerned, Merits supports one in particular that's happened the last few years in San Francisco in the fall that's called the Behavioral Science and Marketing Summit mm-hmm. um, that's put on by a brilliant young guy named Omarwa, and it's yeah all entirely to support his nonprofit called Take Her Back, which is uh, an initiative to end um, human sex trafficking in India. So Merit's partners with him to put on that event because it happens to be our sort of main corporate philanthropy mission as well, um, given that we're a big player in the travel industry. Unfortunately, that can be sort of implicit in the human trafficking world. So we try to do a big part in educating and you know encouraging our partners to sign pledges and be part of this movement to fight human trafficking. So that was a really nice marriage, I think, between us and the Behavioral Science and Marketing Summit. 
And that's great. And he's ex-Walmart, now he's at UCLA's. I, he's on my radar. I think I'm talking to him next month to do something more or less that's, like this. That's right. I think he's always been, uh, you'll have to check with him, but I believe he's always been an adjunct professor yeah. at UCLA, but while he had a day job, which was managing the whole behavioral science practice for Walmart. So yeah, this guy's, uh, I don't know if he ever sleeps or what, but um, right. But recently he passed the torch at Walmart to his colleague, Jason Herrera, yeah. who's also a really, really smart guy. So Jason took over at Walmart so that Ohm could focus completely on Take Her Back. So a really commendable move for Ohm. But yeah, I bet he's still involved in UCLA and probably a million other things. Good for, good for him. Yeah, he's one of these guys that, yeah, you always wonder, like, when does he sleep? Yeah. That's great. That's great. I think we've got books. I think we've got conferences. Is there any other way that people can, you know, who are further interested can connect with you or find out more about behavioral science or? Totally. Yeah. People science is my main recommendation to, to subscribe to, to just learn more about the field itself and just kind of be inspired by fun examples. Um, if you're serious and curious about experimentation though, and that's really what um, my role is for the company is to work with not only Merit's clients, it could be just interested partner organizations who want to try um, running experiments with their own programs to better understand and optimize them. They can work with us too. So I'm always eager to have conversations about that and our academic network of of researchers. So we have the Merits Field Research Collaborative, which is the program by which we connect with some of the brightest scholars in the field of behavioral economics and social psychology. They're at universities around the world, and they're also looking to partner with us to evolve their work from the lab into the real world and see if these findings hold when you apply them to a larger scale program with more consequences, um, you know, real commissions at stake. So we've been running some pretty cool experiments and are happy to do this all in a partnership, you know, for publishable insights. So I encourage people to um, look into that. If, if they're interested, they can always reach out to me and all of that information would be on merits.com. Oh, wow. That, that's amazing. So let me ask this, it sounds like you're an internal center of excellence. So you're the place where you're gathering, you know, all of the great academic insights and all the expert practitioners from around the world. And they kind of, you're, you kind of bring all that together to pr provide insights to the business, but you're also a profit center. It sounds like you have a business advisory role as well from, from where you sit. I know Marit says a lot of that, but you also a profit center, behavioral science, you know, sort of consultancy. It's a disgusting nope. word, but no, no, nope. I wouldn't say that because nope. we wouldn't, we, we don't decouple the um, behavioral science from the, the very from the core, core of everything Merits does. So if you were to work with Merits on a program, be it, you know, a dealership incentive program or um, an annual employee meeting or a hotel loyalty program, that program would undoubtedly include, you know, science in the base layer because we're kind of working internally behind the scenes to ensure that that's the case and educating employees and bringing in academic partners and the like. So any kind of business you do with Merits is, um, grounded in behavioral science, but we do, my group as the sort of research center is always interested in learning and, and publishing learnings any way that we can. So we don't limit that to clients. Um, so we could also, you know, talk about doing a pure research partnership if that was um, of interest to someone looking to publish the findings. Well, it sounds like you don't sleep all that much either. So <laughs> with what's going on, if you don't mind me saying, it sounds like you're pretty busy. Busy in a good way. Stuff, yeah, stuff no, I, I understand. Love. No, I can tell. I can tell by your uh, by by the passion and the way you describe these things. That this isn't a sort of have to. This is a get to job. That's uh, right. Yeah. Thank you. Makes Very sense. lucky. Well, that's great. Well, I want to thank you uh, so much. I mean, I found this enlightening and I've been reading and writing about behavioral science for five years. So uh, I've learned a lot and um, I'm very grateful to you. And uh, for listeners, check out Merits, check out Charlotte Blank, uh, check out, is it peoplescience.com? That's right. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. Talk soon. If you'll permit me a 10-second commercial break, Think Bigger, Think Better survives only because of the goodwill and support of its Patreon subscribers. So if you're loving the show, head over to patreon.com Paul Gibbons and hit that Become a Patron button. For as little as $2 a month, you get extra content, free content, can listen into recordings, and get free books. So thank you very much for your support, and back to our show. Kelly, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better! <laughs> Thank you, Paul. It's so great to be back. Yeah, good to have you. So the future of work. What on earth is that? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that very question, right? I knew this was going to come up. 
part of the problem is there's so much noise right now in the conversation. Everyone's talking about it in a slightly different manner. But here's the way that I think about it. Digital technologies, yes, have always been a part of the workforce. Um, you know, our European colleagues are now calling this the fourth industrial revolution. However, the, the rate at which they're actually upending work for human workers has accelerated at a pace that we haven't seen before. Right. And so I think the future of work is trying to figure out how do we handle these human machine collaborations that are entering almost every profession, every industry, every organization. And most importantly, I think we're at a crossroads where we really get the opportunity, the way that I see the future of work, is upending the traditional, you know, industrial mindset and really creating a very um, innovative, human-oriented way to to go about and do our work in a much more meaningful value add that we haven't necessarily had the luxury to do before these technologies came on the scene. Uh, but hang on a minute. Uh, that sounds paradoxical to me. So, like, we've got to have these workplaces that are technologized, right? Yes. How does that make them more, how do they become more human? Well, here's, here's the way I see it is before we've built out all these organizations and we even give out, you know, MBAs all around business administration, routine, efficient, you know, some of my former colleagues used to laugh about, you know, you're just pushing paper all day. Um, what are you actually creating or doing? And so I think because of technologies, especially artificial intelligence and robotic process automation, we're able to move and offload the administrative burden that I think the human workforce has been carrying for 40, 50 years, um, really since the second or third industrial revolution. And instead we can get back to what value are we actually creating um, for our customers, for our organization, for society as a whole. Let's let the technology administer the work and, and let's actually get back to our roots and begin to create and innovate and become intellectually curious again in the workforce. Wow, that's a, that sounds amazing. It sounds utopic. Well, uh, we have to paint the utopian picture. We got to aim for. We we need a new north star. <laughs> so we, need that, to, we need something to point at. That's right. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that strikes me as paradoxical because uh, as workplaces become more roboticized or more machine learning, more AI or whatever facet we're we're doing, you're saying that there's an opportunity for them to become more human. Like, wow. That is my main message, Paul. I am yes. I I think. I'm fearful as much as I'm painting a utopian picture that there is a lot of technology entering the workforce and we're not asking the question to what end should we be using this technology to what degree and to what benefit does it have for the, for the human workforce and the human customer. And um, I think unless we start talking about the very human element and it is ironic that, you know, I think what's most in demand right now is, is how do we change our talent platforms and ways that we think about humans working with each other as well as with machinery and, and technology to, to do something good. So what are the elements? I heard, I read, I wrote, I read, I'm going to cut to the chase. Like I read something you wrote. I don't know if this is still the way you think about things. There'll be changes to the workforce, the workplace, and yep. to the nature of work. Is yep. that st still a framework that you're using to, you know, organize your ideas around this? Yeah, because I mean, and this probably is coming a bit from my organizational behavior background and the way that we were taught to think about, you know, I'll be curious, Paul, if you agree or disagree, but really looking at one, what does this mean from an individual perspective, uh, at an individual worker level? Those, that's obviously the easiest to measure and, and start thinking about. Mm -hmm. Second is thinking, so that would be, you know, the actual work slash workforce itself. But the second way that I'm starting to think about it is, so more in that group and team model, um, how is that actually transforming the way that we think about talent as a team? And I think as talent moves off of organizations' campus, off of their balance sheets, and it really, we truly become, I hate to use this word, but like an ecosystem of talent um, coming in and out of projects, what does that mean from you know, just the organizational commitment, identity issue? How do we think through, you know, Amy Edmondson uses the word teaming out of Harvard. Um, so how do we think about it at that level? And then the last level is really, and this is something, the reason, one of the reasons why I joined Accenture is they're looking at it from a broader societal perspective, um, which starts to get into some of those more philosophical questions. But how do we actually create sustainable business models? Um, not ones that are necessarily, you know, which obviously building is going to be part of it, but not necessarily the most digital uh, business model. Um, mm -hmm. So those are really the three levels I'm looking at today. Right. Okay. So those are that's three different than your original than your original framework in mm -hmm. or your earlier writing. It was harder when we first started thinking about the future of work. The framework was almost too broad. 
where it's hard to really measure, you know, where those three, and listen, it's going to be hard to measure the team level and societal impact, but you can still find sustainable metrics and organizational performance. But it was, it was too hard to really measure the, the broader way that workplace work and workforce was being transformed. I think it's a great theoretical framework to start thinking about it. But as we're starting to get into operationalizing what this means, um, I'm kind of going back to my org behavior roots and looking at individual group and org level um, variables. Interesting. Okay, that's cool. Well, I guess one thing that might be missing from your new framework is what you said about workplace in your earlier writing. Because I seem to remember there was something about human-machine interface and ergonomics and the design of, of the physical workspace as well as the virtual workspace to be more, I don't know, how to describe it, to, to facilitate these technology-enabled collaboration, if you want. Is that, what, did you, what were your thoughts on that? Like, how do we, how do we design workplaces physically? virtually and otherwise yeah it's funny i was just at um rework last week and so talking nice a couple a couple of the colleagues over there and um i mean they're obviously going all in on that that question and that issue of you know how do we actually create optimal environments um again being enabled by the digital technology without getting into creepy tracking either, but actually bringing some empirical evidence to what works in org design uh, mm. from a face, uh, place perspective. So um, I think there's a lot of work being done in that space. I think, you know, because the future of work is such a broad topic, you can get lost in, in all of the, the different avenues and, and roads to go down. And so I'm, again, when I think through like from an individual worker perspective or even a group level perspective, a research question I might ask at the group level you know, thinking about Accenture, I work on a global team. I haven't necessarily met with very many of my colleagues in person. What are the best digital technologies? And not even technologies, but what are the norms that teams should be establishing on these Microsoft Teams or on Slack that actually accelerate psychological safety and our ability to work well together? And not necessarily, hey, here's the latest and greatest uh, digital collaboration tool. Good luck. You know, and so I think from that perspective, I'm also looking at the way that leadership is setting the norms as we expand what it means to actually work at a company and within a particular uh, physical place. Uh, uh, do you use Teams or do you use Slack at uh, Accenture? Uh, we use Microsoft Teams. How similar to Slack is it? My exposure to Slack was pretty limited to, because I think there was just some privacy concerns at a, you know, at a different level when I was at Deloitte. Teams, I have to say, is pretty similar. It's The interface is certainly different. You know, I think Slack has really done a great job at making it pretty intuitive. They have, and it's fun. And Slack is fun. I don't know if Microsoft has built that in. I've not used Teams. But Slack okay. is fun. Micro, you know, being true to Microsoft, it's built a bit more for productivity, I would say. Yeah. So it's a little bit more obvious just in terms of, you know, file sharing and, you know, mm. being able to, to work off Word documents together. But when it comes to actually water cooler chatting, I think Slack was uh, a little bit better for that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I started using it. It's amazing. I mean, they have a they have a they have a plugin where you can send someone a Giphy. I mean, come on. I yeah, mean, yeah. You know. okay. <laughs> Very different. I feel Microsoft Teams is much more business enterprise focused, and yeah. I think Slack is probably where a lot more of the startups <laughs> that companies are on. Would be my guess. <laughs> but that but that speaks to the um because you say something like you know how do these norms get established mm -hmm. i mean they sort of get established emergently like yes. I, I i don't know that there are so many senior people like i i think it's more bottom up especially with slack is this i think that these i mean the organizations i, I was comcast was from them where they're using slack is everybody in this development thing two three four hundred people they were all connected in slack they're all loving it and the thing that they had to do was get actually get the leaders of the company to talk to workers the way workers want to be talked to, which is on Slack, which is not on email, which is not on town halls, which is like, how do we use this? And the change was really bottom up and the norms were created from the bottom, not from the top, which I thought was interesting. Maybe that's probably, uh, what do you think about that? That's kind of, I thought that was kind of cool. I think that's great. I mean, and I think, you know, ideally, I mean, if we look at the, you know, macro level trends that are happening, I mean, You'd hope at some level that the future of work allows for a more bottom-up in general mm -hmm. um, sort of operating norm for organizational models. So much has been top-down, which is really stifled. To your point, the ability to have this emergent, you know, in order to have something emergent happen, people have to feel psychologically safe to share and, and actually be transparent and contribute to establishing yeah. those norms. So, I mean, that to me would 
is also love to see the future go to more of these emergent bottom-up processes and just ideologies. You know, we're hearing so much about psychological safety these days. That's like the new black. Why do you think that's important? You know, this is, this is my hypothesis. I think before just reading some of the, you know, one of my um, projects I did when I was working on the textbook was going in and looking at historical and archival business diaries uh, of people working on the factory lines back in the 1920s and 30s and even in the coal mines. And it was so apparent and obvious that they didn't necessarily, they, they, they were actually discouraged from bringing mental thought into the organization and that we had become so hyper-focused on this desire to be efficient and routine that we didn't want creative. We, you didn't want variance from the mean in some way because mm. the whole system was built on everyone doing the exact same type of work of what they were hired for. And so the notion of having psychological safety, the factory was still going to run whether or not someone felt psychologically safe. Now, that's not to say that they should not have been working in, in better and more optimal environments, but business would still go on. I think as most of the work, at least, you know, in my professional services context, has transitioned to more of this knowledge-based, continuous learning, psychological safety is now the linchpin for me to do a high-performing job. Um, So I think it's completely changed the game. And we care so much now more about the way I feel and the way I think and whether or not I can actually bring myself to work because it's not, I'm not working with my hands. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter. It's it's all in my head. And, and with that comes a lot of emotion and messiness. Yeah. At a factory, they were hiring your hands. They didn't really, the thinking was uh, an epic phenomenon. It was something that, uh, you know, these, these hands, they do some of that, but the less of it, the better. And of course, that's not the case with knowledge workers today and for knowledge workers to innovate to be creative, to voice ideas when they have them, to engage with passion and purpose, uh, they need to feel as if they're psychologically safe. Uh, So anyway, it's a new thing. And we're talking about that in OB and OD right now. It's just something that we weren't talking about. I don't even know if we were talking about 18 months ago. Yeah. Anyway, that's good. Uh, Yeah. uh, We were talking about climate. Climate is always something that people thought were, they confuse it with culture, but sort of climate has uh, an element of psychological safety in it, some of the climate models. But anyway, uh, let me, uh, because I don't want to take up too much of your time here. Let me think, where can we go now? So we talked about the teaming level. Sustainable business models. Yes. Wow. That's the, the tough exam question. That's the extra credit. Yeah. How does that, how does that work? Well, you know, I, I feel, you know, this is where I get, feel pretty strongly is where, where we need to change our underlying assumptions around uh, the purpose of business and, and really what is the role of industry in, in general to a larger society. You're going to get and, all so you're going to get all socialists on me. I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> oh no, we 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 can debate away. I I'm still I don't have. This is the problem. We we need a new terminology or new language no, around. No, I know, I know, I know. What? We sure do. Yeah. 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 I mean, how do you have it? So I mean, maybe it's stakeholder theory where you just have multiple stakeholders that you consider as part of your success metrics. There's actually some great work coming out of Mars Incorporated. I don't know if we talked about this last time. Um, and they partnered with Oxford Business School. Um, it's called Heal Business to Heal the World, creating additional metrics for business success that yeah. are longer term focused, you know, again, are we making people better who are coming through our organizations? Um, you know, is there a way that we can start to measure that? How about social capital, the way that we're actually from a relational perspective with our vendors, with our customers? You know, how how is that, you know? Well, I mean, that's a big ask. I'll tell you why it's a big ask, because if you want organizations to be more human-centric, I mean, organizations use capital and and, and, and people, right? Uh, yes. You know, that's a, that's a Marxist idea, but, you know, that, that that's true in its essence before. And we have a system which is enshrined legally and culturally in the fact that capital has preference over workers, that the, the owners of capital have more say in the direction of the company, they have more say in how the company's run. And there have been people, uh, there's a great book by Marjorie Kelly called The Divine Right of Capital. It's like, why? Why would capital have preference over labor? And it may be true. See, this is the interesting thing as we come into this kind of like uh, 21st century, the utopia that we were talking about, is when you're hiring people's hands as labor, then capital is pretty important. But as you start to use things that are higher cognitive faculties of people, as you want more heads and hearts, engaged in, in the business then labor becomes well is it our our humans are our greatest asset so i mean is is that going to sort of redress this imbalance in power that we have 
between capital labor uh, thing. But it is enshrined in law. I mean, it's enshrined in company law in the U.S. and the U.K. or something like that. You know, the rights of various things. So we are the revolution that you and I are talking about, sustainable business models and a sort of an upending of the importance of labor in organizations or something like that are something that might take a while. And I think we need more examples. So like the one, the company I study a lot is Mars Incorporated. They're private. So they're yeah. not really yeah. tied to the same shareholder. They don't, to, they don't have to worry about what the guys on Wall Street think. No, but you know who's really making some headroads is Unilever. I mean, they've stopped the quarterly earning calls. You know, the CEO has gone all in on sustainable metrics as opposed to just shareholder uh, wealth metrics. And I mean, so far. He's you know, the bomb. Yeah, and he almost got taken over by Warren. Yeah, no, he his their goal Unilever. I did some work for Unilever like five years ago, okay. and their their goal was I designed a big management development program for them. Their big goal was double revenue and have their environmental footprint. Yes, double revenue and have their environmental footprint. And like, who says that? Like, who says that? <laughs> and this is you know for American listeners, that's Procter and Gamble, right? So they're a big ass company uh, over there. Yep. So uh, that guy's awesome. Paul Pullman. He's the best. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's what I look for is, is how can we create these companies that are capital rich and that very much are focused on increasing capital, mostly for, you know, whoever it is that owns it, for their shareholders or private investors, but do so in a way that is sustainable. I mean, because, I mean, it's just this whole short term thinking that we've got ourselves trapped in. I just don't think works when we're talking about, again, the shift to knowledge Based work when you're ma manufacturing widgets, sure you might be able to put some short-term pressure on that process. Um, it's really hard when your entire supply chain is human knowledge workers. <laughs> mm -hmm. this, so, yeah. what are the forces? So, if I think the leg the the legal structures of corporations are conservative, mm -hmm. Wall, Wall Street is conservative, right? Wall Street's only interested in things like engagement or the human experience at work, insofar as it drives quarterly revenue, right? Correct. So it's a means to an end. You probably studied some philosophy back in the day, something like Kant said, never use people as a means to an end. Treat them as ends, treat them as ends in themselves. So, you know, we have a system which treats people as means to an end, the end right. of which is profit and wealth, and humans are the means by which we achieve that, which to, to my thinking is ass backwards. Why would you design a world that way? But anyway, that's the way the world is designed right now. Yes. It is. And, you know, I think it's it's going to take new stories, new narratives and new underlying assumptions that the dignity of human labor is kind of the ends of work. And, you know, I strongly think shareholder returns are, you know, oftentimes a means to that, but they, they are not the end. Um, and I think that's why we've seen in general the companies that have lost in the S&P 500 and, and so forth have been declining at a rapid pace. The ability for a company to really even be publicly traded has been um, waning. And, and so I think it's just time for a different model. We keep what's working, you know, it doesn't have to upend the entire thing, um, but figure out what is working and then how do we make it better? And um, I don't know, Paul, it's what I'm gonna spend the next 15, 20 years working towards. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's a noble it's a noble thing to attempt, you know, we don't know, ever know, you know, whether we'll achieve our most, our noblest ends. I guess that's part of their nobility is the fact, the fact that the fact that we don't know they don't come with a, a sort of an ironclad certainty that, that we'll be able to achieve what we do. But, you know, we fight the good fight, right? We do. I want to thank you. And uh, let's drop each other an email a little bit. Thanks for let's being on the show once again. It's always a pleasure. And now, if you'll permit me uh, a few remarks in clothing, for the next few months, I'm promoting impact and doing a bunch of consulting and speaking, and I'm pondering my next book project, which I'll start writing in November, December 2019. I'm not sure. My passion is definitely to write the next Capitalism 3.0 type book, a tour of today's business ethics issues, privacy, AI, drug pricing, the future of work, humanizing business and change, and so forth. That right now, that's the number one contender. There are other contenders, such as a book on life hacking would be a possibility. And the third volume of Leading Change in the Digital Age is another possibility. So I'll be mulling that over. It's a big decision. So I'm going to commit to doing that for seven months, eight months straight. So, you know, I sort of want to think about it a little bit before I do it. I'll let you know probably the next time I do an episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. And in closing, I often close with a tour of pop culture and what I'm following in music. I'm following Travis Scott and Tyga. I'm reading Max Tegmark's Life 3.0 and A History of London by Peter Ackroyd. And I'm trying to get through James Joyce's Ulysses for the fourth time. 
it's amazing to me that something I love so much when I read it is so hard to pick up. It is a very difficult book. In the TV world, I've just finished season three of The Tunnel, an amazing Anglo-French drama. Money Heist, a Spanish show, was again, I think, one of the best shows of 2019. It was extraordinarily fun, and as is season three of Goliath on Amazon. So those are my three just-finished amazing shows for 2019. And on the podcast front, I'm mostly listening these days to Sam Harris and Hardcore History. Both are amazing. Both are best in class. And uh, listening to Sam Harris and sharing some of his insights has provoked you know, lengthy, lengthy discussions on Facebook and LinkedIn because he's a controversial character. I, I, I find I'm in agreement with much, if not everything, of what he says, but he's tarred, and I think somewhat unfairly, with uh, saying being an apologist for far-right, neocon, dark web views. And uh, I, 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 don't, I, I, don't, I don't find that. And certainly I agree with one of Sam Harris's main sort of values is that nothing should be off limits. Everything should be discussable. Sunlight, as I often say, is the best disinfectant. And, you know, he's willing to bring on his show controversial guests, even when he uh, disagrees with them vehemently himself for the purpose of, you know, having rational and reasoned discussions about issues that matter. So I'm enjoying Sam Harris and hardcore history is something that I just wish I wouldn't have, I hated history in high school. And if I had something, my teachers were at all as engaging as the dude, I think his name is Carlin on hardcore history. That wouldn't have been the case. So that's all for now. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. To celebrate the launch of the show and thank you all for listening. I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.